the practical epistle. That's what I like to call James. We're going to be looking at a few verses in chapter 4. And I'll be preaching on the subject, the problem of presumptuous planning. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, going to the end of the chapter, verses I'm sure you are very familiar with, have read, you, you probably quote some portion, part of these verses at times, and God willing, we'll uh, take a good survey of the passage and try to understand it better and, uh, and see how it uh, impacts our lives and see if we are following what the Lord would have us to do. Verse 13, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a town, such and such a town, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In the fourth chapter of this letter, James addresses the subject of worldliness. And he rebukes his readers. He warns them about this sin of worldliness. Take note of verse 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make himself an enemy of God. In other words, if you love the world, you will evoke the anger, and the hostility of God, for God tolerates no rivals. Notice in verse 4, you adulterous people. Now, he's not talking about literal adultery, a man in the congregation running off with a man, not a woman, not his wife, but he's talking about their love of the world and entanglement with the world, and they are committing spiritual adultery. And so strong words about worldliness. But worldliness manifests itself in manifold ways, various ways. Sometimes we think, uh, well, a worldly man, he's the guy that cusses and smokes and drinks and does all of those things. And I'd say, yeah, that's an indication of worldliness. But worldliness can involve a whole lot of other things as well. And beginning here in verse 13, James shows how Christians can have a worldly mindset when they plan their lives. People of the world plan their lives, how? Without taking God into account. They do that because they think they're in control of their lives. So they disregard completely seeking God's mind and knowing God's will. They determine what they will do, where they will go. They decide 
whether they will pursue a course of action or not and be successful or not. And James, the Lord's servant, rebukes this kind of presumptuous planning. Believers ought not to make plans for their lives like unbelievers do. They ought to plan their lives how? In accordance with the will of God. We believe God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign, he is in control of every aspect of our lives. He's given us his word, which directs us what to do. And so we're to come to him in prayer. We're to read his word and say, Lord, we want to do your will. Make that to be, help us make that to be a priority in our lives. Now, this problem of planning with out taking God into consideration that evidently the readers of James had is still with us today. Aren't we prone to live by this worldly attitude of, well, I'll, I'll do what I want to do. Don't need to consult God. I don't need to read the Bible. Uh, God's given me a good mind. I can think things through. I can decide for myself. I can figure this all out myself. Well, the verses before us is a rebuke from God through his servant to correct those of us who have this problem of presumptuous planning, this problem of living our lives independently of God. James does four things in this passage about the problem of presumptuous planning. He states the problem. He then analyzes it. Then he gives the solution to the problem and exhorts us to fix the problem. He ends by challenging his readers and thereby us to do what we know is right. Well, we begin in our study today with the problem stated. Verse 13, come now, and that's just an invitation, isn't it? He's, he's calling for their attention. He's trying to stir them up to think about the way they are living. Come now, you who say, and then he gives an example of, of what people say. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now let me connect with that what James says in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. When you live your life that way, you are boasting in your arrogance. You are proud and proud that you're proud. Boast in your arrogance. And then what does he say? All such boasting is evil. It's wicked. So if we plan our lives without taking God into account, that's just not a little bit of sin. That's evil. That's wicked. Now, note how he is here describing the problem. The problem has to do with the way some of these Christians 
we're planning for the future. He sets forth a scenario that was typical of the way they went about conducting their business affairs. And it's stated quite simply in quite a bit of detail also there in verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Now on the surface, that sounds innocent enough. The picture he's painting is of a self-confident, careful planner. Someone who has well-laid plans. And that's not bad in and of itself. I mean, complete in details. In fact, look at some of the details. They decide where they will go. We will go into such and such a town. Athens, Antioch, Damascus. We might say Atlanta. We could say New York City, Hong Kong. So they were deciding where they'll go. They decide when they will go. Today or tomorrow. They decide how long they will stay. We will spend a year there. They decide what they will do. We will trade. King James says buy and sell. And they're sure about the outcome. We will make a profit. So they didn't leave anything out. Or so they thought. They made detailed plans. Well, what can go wrong with that? Did you know there are some Christians who say that it's wrong? This notion of planning in itself is wrong. They think a Christian just ought to fly by the seat of his pants. Just whatever strikes him. You don't need to plan. Just take one step at a time. Take the next step. The next step after that. You don't need to plan for the future. And these kind of people say Christians ought not have insurance. They ought not have retirement. But that's not the problem here. James is, James is not condemning intelligent planning for the future. You well know that the Bible is full of examples of men and women who made plans under the will of God for the future. Joseph is as good an example of anybody as that. He encouraged the people in Egypt to plan for the future because they saw famine coming. There's nothing wrong with planning. Did you know there are some people who think what's wrong here is they were greedy and they wanted to make a profit? Socialist interpreters of this passage think the problem is capitalism. But there's no rebuke here for businessmen wanting to make a profit. Again, the Bible does not condemn hard work and labor, and it does not condemn the enjoyment of the benefits one accrues with hard work and labor. In fact, the Bible commends such a lifestyle. What's wrong with this picture is that the planning formulates its own course of action with total disregard of God. They arrogantly, 
And that's the word that's used in verse 16. They arrogantly went about their business making their plans without seeing the need for divine guidance or assistance. And what was their attitude? That's what comes out in verse 16. You boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So it isn't planning. It isn't profit that's the problem. The problem is this attitude of arrogance. The image is that of the self-confident businessman who projects a course of action for a whole year in advance and arrogantly assumes that he knows the future, that everything is under his control. And James says, shall I say the Holy Spirit through James says, all such arrogance is evil. Why is it evil? Because it fails to acknowledge God. Dear friends, it is wicked for us who believe in God, believe in His Son, who follow Jesus Christ to fail to seek the will of God in all things. Now, we can understand that the unconverted people of this world are going to live their lives in such a way, but not believers. We can understand an atheist saying, I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. I mean, that's what they say. But not a Christian. It's a great evil for those who know that God exists, that God has saved them to arrogantly defy his will. And if we plan without taking God into consideration, we are arrogantly defying his will. So what's missing in the picture that's painted for us here in verse 13? God is absent. Put God in it, and it's all right to make plans. But keep God out of it, and it's wicked. It is evil. When we keep God out of it, we make plans according to our self-will and not his will. I will is the essence of sin. And that is clearly seen in the I wills of Lucifer, the morning star, Isaiah chapter 14. You ever read that passage, verses 13 and 14? This is what he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then the worst of all of them, I will be like the most high. If we operate that way, then we come under this condemnation. You boast in your arrogance. That was their problem. They were arrogant in their confidence that nothing would interfere with their plans and everything would work out just right. They were acting like the atheists, the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. But all such planning is evil because it leaves God out. 
You know the story recorded in Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He learned this lesson, a pagan man, who learned this lesson the hard way. One day when he was walking about his royal palace and he looked about all that he had accomplished, he proudly said this, and it's recorded in Daniel 4 verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You recall what happened to him, don't you? God's judgment fell on him. And he was soon on all fours, going about like an animal, thinking himself to be an ox, even eating grass. Now he later came to his senses. And when he did, he acknowledged the sovereign will of God. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a marvelous story, isn't it? Reason returned to Nebuchadnezzar, and God restored him. What a lesson he learned, and he humbled himself before God. But take note that if God was displeased with a pagan king that had an arrogant attitude, how much more is he displeased with his children who walk in arrogance, planning their future as though he didn't exist. There are not many atheists, real atheists in the world, but there are a lot of practical atheists practical atheist, somebody who believes in God but lives like God doesn't exist. Are there practical atheists in this congregation today? Let's look at the second thing. We've seen the problem stated. We look next at the problem analyzed. The problem with presumptuous planning is that it pretends to know what tomorrow holds. And James points out their fallacy. Note in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then the question, for what is your life? For you are a mist, a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. There are two things here, limited knowledge and uncertainty of life. James highlights these two things in analyzing the problem. One would have to know the future, and one would have to be certain of life in order to make the kind of plans they were making. Let's consider limited knowledge. 
you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. How could they make plans for next year when they didn't even know what would happen the next day? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you? I don't. I've got some plans. I know what I plan to do tomorrow, but I may or may not do them. There's only one who knows what the future holds, and that's God. He is omniscient. Don't you love those omni-attributes? Omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, omnipresent, present everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything before it happens. We're not open theists. We're classical theists. Uh, there are some idiots these days who say they're theologians and they say God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. he got a good idea, but he doesn't know for certain. It's very free willism because how man exercises his so-called free will will change things and catches God off guard. Can you imagine believing in a God like that? The Bible won't allow us to believe that God is like that. God is omniscient, but we don't have that kind of knowledge. We may surmise what will happen tomorrow, but we can't be certain. And these Christians had been planning as if they knew exactly what the future held. And that's acting like they control the future. So limited knowledge. The second thing is uncertainty of life. What is your life? And he answers, you're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. What's James doing? He's pointing out the transitory nature of life. They were planning for the future while disregarding the fact that they may not even be around next year. The apostle is using an illustration from nature. The ESV has a mist. The picture is of the morning mist that covers the countryside, but it's soon gone. We see that a lot this time of year. Mist hanging over a valley, over a field. But the sun comes up, and what happens? The mist vanishes. It goes away. It tells us how brief life is. And there are many passages that point that out. Isaiah compared our life to the flowers of a field. Job, we're like the wind, we're like a shadow. Life is like that. MacArthur says, life is as transitory as a puff of smoke from a fire, the steam that rises from a cup of coffee, or one's breath briefly visible on a cold day. So some of these believers James was writing this letter to, those 12 tribes of the dispersion, he says, chapter 1, verse 1, been planning 
as if they were going to be here forever. We do not know what tomorrow holds. What's that old song? But we know the one who holds tomorrow. We do not know what tomorrow's holds because our lives are frail and they are as unpredictable as a vapor, a mist. That means we are to plan our lives according to the providential outworking of God's will. And God does have a plan for our lives. So as the writer of the book of Proverbs says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So we live each day as it is presented to us and make plans for the next, acknowledging God is sovereign. Jesus gave a parable that illustrates the era of presumptuous plannings found in Luke chapter 12. There's a man that made definite plans about his future. You know, he tore down the old barn, built up a new one, filled it up. And God says, you fool. And he, he took his life that night. Then who shall those things be? Oh, life is so short. You kids don't realize that yet. I'm 71. Am I the oldest person in here? Maybe. Man, I, it was like yesterday when I was 21. And just a little bit before that when I was 11. And it seemed like we're going to live forever. And I look back and say, where did all the time go? Life is short. We're here one minute and we're gone the next. Illness comes. Accidental death. The return of Christ could shut, cut our life short. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? And all this happens as quickly as the morning sun dissipates the mist. Or as the wind comes and blows the smoke from a fire away. Spurgeon gave this helpful illustration. He said, one day a man uh, asked a Christian, will you tell me what life is? The man of God stopped a moment, paused, and then deliberately walked away. When his friend met him the next day, he said, yesterday I asked you a question and you didn't answer it. And he said, but I did. And, and, and the man said, no, no, you didn't answer my question. You were there, and then you were gone. And then he said, well, you asked me what life was, and that was my answer. Could I have answered your question better? I mean, he was there in a moment, and the next moment he was gone. Spurgeon commented, he answered and acted wisely, for that is a complete summary of our life here below. We come and we go. We've seen the problem stated, the problem analyzed. Let's look thirdly at the problem solved. 
And I think this is the most important verse in this passage. It's verse 15. How ought Christians to plan for the future? What is the proper attitude? James says, instead, and the instead would be in light of what he's, this fellow stated in verse 13. Today or tomorrow we'll go in such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead of saying that, here's what we're to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, there must be willing submission to God's will. Instead of arrogant presumption, there should be reverent submission. Christians ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. That's submission to God's will. I mean, we shall live, we shall do this or that, we will live and do this or that only if God wills. So what is James saying? He is saying that God should be consulted in all our plans. That's one of the reasons why we pray. Oh, prayer contains so many different elements we often bypass some of the most important praise and thanks to God. How often do we pray, Lord, I need you to do this for me today. Instead of starting, Lord, you are great and mighty and glorious and wonderful in all your ways. Thank you for what you've done for me. We, we fail on that point, don't we? Now, the Lord wants us to come, though, with our petitions. And we might come and say, Lord, I'm not sure what to do in my life. I'm making plans, and there are certain things I think I want to do, certain things I like. Will you direct my thinking? Will you bring people into my life that might give me good counsel, that might keep me from stumbling, tripping up? That's prayer. Lord, guide me. Lord, teach me, direct me. Help me. And so we should pray that, and then we should resign all of our plans to the outworking of his sovereign will. We should always condition our plans with the will of God. You read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, and you'll see that. Here's a statement that's made by him in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, verse 21. I must, by all means, keep this feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you again, God willing. Romans 1, verse 10. Making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. That's just not filler thrown into a passage that he's writing. That's central to it. 1 Corinthians 4, 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. That's how Paul directed the course of his life. Made plans. 
I have hopes. But it'll only happen if the Lord wills. Did you know Jesus did the same thing throughout his life? What did he seek? The will of his Father. You remember after the conversion of the woman at the well, John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John chapter 5, verse 30, he's in conflict with his enemies, and he said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You remember in agony in Gethsemane, where he's facing the awful reality of the cross? How did he pray? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you you will. MacArthur's right when he says the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly modeled the most essential element of a relationship to God, obedience to his will. Now, we need to know what his will is first. And knowing his will, we are to do it. And when we make plans and say, if the Lord wills, that means we're aware that our lives are under his sovereign control. Again, it's right, it's proper to make plans about the future. But those plans must be made with the recognition that our destinies are in the Lord's hands. I have made it a habit for many years, most of the years of my adult life when writing a letter, often to use initials somewhere in the letter, DV. Now spell check gives you a hard time on that. It won't say DVD. DV. Those two letters stand for two Latin words, Deo Valente. God willing. Ian Murray has written a wonderful biography on the life of A.W. Pink. He shares this story. In the year 1902, when A.W. Pink was 16 years old, he sat around the table with his parents his father was reading the newspaper, which carried news of the preparations for the first coronation in Britain for 64 years. Prince Henry VII, I'm sorry, Prince Edward VII was to be crowned as king. Pink remembers his father saying, oh, I'm sorry to see this worded like that. Why, here's a proclamation that Prince Edward will be crown king at Westminster and there is no Deo Valente God willing now back in those days even the secular press would often make announcements and include in parentheses usually DV or they might spell it out Deo Valente that incident stuck in the mind of the young Arthur Pink 
because when the appointed day for Edward to be crowned, the coronation had to be postponed because he was ill with appendicitis. God willing, we will do this or that. God willing, I'm going to marry that girl. God willing, I'm going to go to that college. God willing, I'm going to take a job in this particular field. Now, obviously, we need to mean with the heart when we say God willing. We're not just to repeat those words like a mantra. There's no magical significance in the words themselves. Attaching God willing to everything we say can be done mechanically. That can become just a glib formula without any real meaning. So we need to say the words. In fact, we're told to, aren't we? Instead, you ought to say. Now what you ought not to say is found in verse 13. And what verse 13 is lacking is what we need to add. Instead, you ought to stay. You ought to say God willing. So it's very important that we recognize that our lives are in God's hands, that we are to make plans only in view of the will of God. We're to seek His help as we formulate our plans, as we put ideas together. Man, his wife talking. Where are we going to go on vacation next year? Let's talk about this. We could go here, we could go there, we could go. I wonder what the Lord would want us to do. Maybe He wouldn't even want us to take a vacation next year. You know, you're sensitive to these things. What does the Lord want for me? And that's the problem solved. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, there's one more thing here in the passage, and that's the problem prevented. James concludes in verse 17 with a principle that is of much broader application than planning one's life. But in the context, that's where it applies. This is the problem prevented. So he writes, So whoever knows the right thing to do. Now what's the right thing to do in this context? To make your plans according to the will of God. Seeking him. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now I'm more accustomed to the new King James, therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it. To him it is sin. So after he tells us to take the Lord into consideration in all our plans, he tells us that not to do so is sin. And that's why it's evil. Going up to verse 16. That's why it's wicked. James therefore takes away any excuse that a believer might have for erecting plans without taking God's will into consideration. Since we know what we're to do in this aspect, we are sinning if we fail to do it. 
James is here talking to us about what we call a sin of omission. Sins can be divided into two categories. Sins of commission, sins of omission. You kids know the difference between those two? A sin of commission is what? It is doing what God strictly forbids us to do. God says no, and we do it anyway. That's a sin of commission. It's the act of a rebel. The sin of commission is done by a defiant transgressor. When God says you shall not, and we do it anyway, that's a sin of commission. Well, what is a sin of omission? A sin of omission is failing, failing to do what God commands us to do. When God gives a positive command, did you know he tells Christians, those who come to believe in Jesus, that they're supposed to be baptized? I know people who tell me they're Christians, but they've never been baptized. They're not doing what the Lord tells them to do. They're failing to do what is good and right. The Lord tells us to witness, and we don't. He tells us to love one another. And we don't. We fail to do those positive things which he commands us to do. That's a sin of omission. It's the act of a neglector. The sins of omission are usually done by simply overlooking a duty or by putting it off. Usually when we think of sins, we think of doing the things which we shouldn't have done. But sins of omission are just as serious. And James wants his readers to know that. So he says, whoever knows the right thing to do, you know this is what you, you should do, and you fail to do it, you're sinning. It's as though he's telling them, you've been fully warned. Now that I've pointed out the matter, you have no excuse. So knowing what should be done obligates a person to do it. Knowledge of what is right and the ability to do it involves obligation. And failure to do that is sin. And so that's true in every area of our lives. If we know what's right, we're under obligation to do it. And I'm not going to take the time now, but that's illustrated in so many different places. Jonah is a good example. What was he supposed to do? Go to Nineveh and preach. What did he do? Went the opposite direction to Tarshish. He fled away. Now God got his attention. Did it in a real interesting way, didn't he? Some sailors in the midst of a storm threw him overboard and he swallowed by a great fish. And he spent three days and three nights sleeping on a foam blubber mattress. You'll get that in a little while, kids. And that fish spit him up, and I like to think he hit the ground running. And he went to Nineveh, and he preached. So many passages like that. We know to do the Master's will, and we don't do it. And he, part of the Sunday school lesson today, disciplines, lovingly, God disciplines us. When we sin, even if we are ignorant 
that our action is sinful. But we aggravate the sin and incur more guilt and punishment when we know what our responsibility is and fail to do it. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So let us not be guilty of presumptuous planning. Let's remember it is only by God's will that we live. Our times are not in our own hands. Our lives are at the disposal of God. We live how long? As long as he appoints. And it is only by God's will that we do what we do. Matthew Henry said, all our actions and designs are under the control of heaven. And that is why we should live in total dependence on God. We are not lords of our own lives. We're not lords of our own actions. And yet so pervasive in our culture's arrogant independence of God that many who even name the name of Christ live as though God didn't exist. They choose a church. They get married. They choose a vocation. They have children. They buy and sell homes. They do everything without regard to the will of God. Dear friends, these words, if the Lord wills, needs to be written over all our plans. If God wills, I will go to this college. If God wills, I will marry that girl. If God wills, I will take this job. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. That should be our constant attitude. Deo valente. God willing. Father, we thank you for your precious word.